Romans chapter 8, I'll begin reading in verse 16. Romans 8, beginning in 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So again, Paul has been emphasizing the position we have in Christ. We have really mentioned that a great deal. The, and, and one of the main reasons for that is for us to understand the security that we have in Christ. That, and, we, and so a lot of the terms we use tend to be uh, really, in a sense, legal terms. The idea that, that a legal transaction has taken place. God is a God of justice. Uh, God, because he's holy, must punish sin. Because God must punish sin, then every single person who's ever been born is going to be punished by God because everybody is guilty of sin. And no one is worthy, and no one will ever be, no one will ever, ever be worthy to go to heaven. But we know that God desires that we are in heaven with him, and of course we would desire to be in heaven. And so the only way that can happen is uh, is this plan that God came up with, which is, again, to have Christ come and be our substitute. Someone else had to be punished for our sins because the punishment for sin is death. And so if, if you're punished for your sin, you die, you don't go to heaven. Uh, and, of course, when we speak of death that way, we mean complete death, which is both physical and spiritual. So the idea, then, is that because this, this event has taken place in history, and God, as our judge, has not only placed on Christ our sins, but punished Christ for our sins. And then he accepted that punishment. In other words, because of Christ's perfect life, because he never sinned in action, he never sinned in his thoughts, uh, he was not born corrupt, uh, he was qualified to be our substitute. Because if he had, as we all know, if he had committed just one sin, he would have had to have been punished for that one sin. So he was the perfect lamb of God that was punished for us, and as a result of our placing our faith in him, God then justifies us. There's a declaration uh, that we are justified. We are, at that moment, dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Uh, we are indebted to God uh, because of our sin. That debt is wiped out by Christ and what he's done, and then God accepts us fully as we are. He accepts us fully because we are now in Christ. So we are also adopted as his sons. We're adopted as his children. Uh, Paul talks about adoption in the Roman society. Adoption was a very familiar um, term. Uh, and it's, very, it's a very strong legal term. Uh, adoption is very difficult to undo. Uh, in our country... Uh, most of, well, a great deal of our adoption laws were based on both Roman and Jewish laws dealing with abortion, with dealing with uh, um, uh, adoption. And so in our country, if a child is adopted, they cannot be disowned by the family that um, adopted them. Can't be done. Uh, because whatever state you're adopted in, that state government stands behind the adoption and basically declares that it cannot be undone. There's no power that exists. Uh, the only way that it could be undone would be for the country to completely fall apart and no longer be America. 
that that's that's how strong it is and so that term then uh, is keeps its strength when it comes to our understanding the adoption we have uh, into God's family and so that's why all that terminology is used to make sure that we really recognize that it cannot be undone and that we belong to him so because of this this position we have in Christ uh, and uh, the idea that we are the sons of God, we have this sonship relationship. And then also what he's also mentioned is that there's the indwelling spirit, the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit dwells in the believer. He lives in us. Um, so there's this objective, really in a sense a visual certainty uh, that gives us the assurance that we are saved and that we belong to God. Um, and one of the reasons why he emphasizes that so much is because there seems to be, um, I guess you call it a paradox, in the sense that our bodies are still dying. You know, we talk about having new life in Christ, but we're still dying. We, we know our bodies are going to die. So Paul needs to make sure that he answers that, that he explains what's going on with that, uh, so that we don't think somehow that we've been misinformed or that God is too weak to actually save us. So Paul has assured us that even though our bodies are dying, we are alive now because of Christ. We are joined to God, and we are connected to God, and God is the one who gives life. So then, along with that, the Christian is the one who's being led by the Spirit. So when the Bible speaks of you and I being led by the Spirit, um, many times in our society people talk about trying to discover what the Spirit of God wants us to do. We want to know what God's will for our life is. And that's not a bad question, but what we need to remember is that if you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, you are being led by the Spirit of God. It's, it's, it's automatic. It's not something that you have to wait for. It's not something that only takes place when you recognize it. It's happening now because God works in your life and in every circumstance to guide and direct every facet of your life to, to take you in the direction he wants you to go. That, that's, that's just a fact of life. Um, now that doesn't you know, give us an excuse to go to run outside and make a bunch of bad choices. Um, you know, God wants us to take responsibility for our life and to pursue holiness and all those things. But at the same time, he knows that we are limited in our ability to control things and uh, we are given this, again, this sense of assurance that God really is in control. And that's important for us. That it gives to us also, I think, a great deal of freedom uh, to not have to, you know, overanalyze or worry about life. Um, so we are being led by the Spirit of God. This takes place on a daily basis, and that is the norm. So then you know for a fact that no matter what happens in your life, number one, you will never meet anyone by accident. All right? that, that can't happen. You never meet anybody by accident. Um, now, that does not mean, because there's been some who've tried to abuse that, saying, well, if, if I never meet anybody by accident, and I'm single, and I meet another single woman, that means God brought that person in my life for me to marry them. Well, maybe. There's more than one other single person in the world. And just because you meet one of them doesn't mean that's the one God wants you to marry. Well, we, have to be, we have to discern uh, what the will of God is. But at the same time, though, it's still true that we don't meet people by accident. Whether that person is a believer or a non-believer, whether that person is good or that person is wicked, um, God has his reasons and is in control of all of that. So Paul, again, here is reminding us that our sonship places us in a very unique relationship with God the Father and that this, that this intimate relationship we have with God means that God is committed to us. So when we make that statement that God is committed to us, that does not mean that God is committed to you making a lot of money. That does not mean that God is committed to you being happy all the time. doesn't mean that. Uh, because we know that the, uh, one of the goals of God for your life is for you to be like Christ. His desire is for us to be holy. And so God is striving to achieve those purposes in your life. So at least we understand part of the reasons why we meet the people that we meet, and that's God's going to use that 
to help us to become more like a son Christ. Whether it's through conflict with that person, or that person's a blessing to us, or whatever the case may happen to be. God is always working. There's no accident. There's no dead space in your life. Um, God is very active. And again, God is committed to you in all of this. So God's he's never going to abandon you. Uh, it doesn't mean that you will always have understanding, even at that moment, of what's going on. But there are certain things we can be certain of. Understanding may come later, and it is possible that there will be times in life that understanding won't come at all. But we don't have to worry about that. Because, again, God is, is proven through history, through the Word, through experiences in our lives and the lives of others, um, that He's always going to accomplish His purposes. And he's always seeking to accomplish his purposes in me and also in you and in the world all at the same time. Uh, and that's not too much for him. So with all that going on, that should help us to, un that, that, that again should help us to have a, uh, a, a sense, I would say, of, of, of calmness um, where, where we're not, we don't have to stress out or worry about things. We still have to get things done. We still have to fulfill our responsibilities. But I don't have to fret um, because of that. So once again, looking at verse 16, he says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So um, this idea here that the Spirit of God bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God is more than just this um, what's the term? Subjective idea that God assures us that we belong to Him. Almost always, because I can't say always, but almost always, when it comes to our experiences of God, meaning an experience that we are aware of something about God that we'll say touches our emotions. It normally tends to be, it's not, it's not the phrase in fulfillment of, but it is in relation to what we learn about God. So for example, the scripture talks about God being a God of comfort. And there are times that we may go through uh, a tragedy or a time of difficulty, and we actually experience comfort, and we don't know where it came from. Okay, that would be God. And the reason why I know that's God is because the Bible has already told me that he does that. God also will comfort me through other people because God says he does that as well. But, but, I, but the aspects that I experience, the way I know that they're from God is because I've learned about them from the scripture. The reason why that's important is, is that because sometimes individuals can get caught up in, in basically the subjective first and just then imagine that almost any feeling, it's automatically from God. And that's untrue. Um, and we have to be careful with that. Some people think, well, I did such and such. I felt so good, like I had a sense of peace. That was from God. Well, maybe. Not necessarily. Uh, because I've known people who've committed sin and told me they had a sense of peace. That's not from God. All right? That's, you know, so we have to be discerning. So it's not this easy thing. Um, and I think eh, it's probably good that part of it's a little difficult. You know, God is an infinite being. We're not going to figure him out in that way. We're finite beings. We're, we're the creature. He's the creator. Uh, but at the same time, we want to be aware that God is active. That God is not like at a distance, just kind of with his arms folded across his chest, watching to see what we're going to do. And he, he has nothing to do with, ha with what's happening. He's just kind of being entertained. Uh, that's, that's not what God is doing. Um, so it's really a great thing. So when you look back on your life, because normally... It's a lot easier, I think, to see how God was working in your life when you look in the past because everything's already happened, you know? So, you know, for me, when I look back at my past, you know, like when I had, you know, I've told people before when I was playing football in college and got my knee busted up, you know, I went through a bunch of things then, but when I look back, to me, it's really clear what was happening. I wasn't walking with the Lord the way I wanted to. Football was way too important. I was clearly probably going to go in a direction that God didn't want me to go. So he broke my knee. That wasn't me, because I was the one that wasn't living right, because God could have broken my head. So he didn't do that. He was merciful. So he broke my knee. And he brought me down several notches and put me in a position where I was ready to listen to what he had to say. I don't have any regrets about that. I'm not, 
I'm not bummed saying, man, I just wish God would have taught me another way. All right? Because God never makes a mistake. So, and then as I look back at my life, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people begin to notice this, that, you know, certain events happen in your life and almost everything after that is dictated by, by that one thing. So for me, uh, when my football career ended, I stopped going to that school in Oregon. I went back home to Hawaii. Went back home to Hawaii. I started going to Bible college. Didn't get very far, but anyway, starting going to Bible college. But, so I met, I met my wife, who we went to high school together, never dated, which is probably a good thing because I was a jerk. So she went away to college. Then she came back to Hawaii. And when she came back to Hawaii, clearly I was ready. And we hooked up and we got married. And now I look at my kids and my grandkids, all that was set in motion because God broke my knee and set me on a different path than what I was headed on. I didn't know where I was going, but I wasn't thinking that. Um, so the thing is, is that, you know, all these things take place, God is, has his hand in all those things. And so there's, there should be a great sense of relief and joy in our life as a result of it, even when bad things take place. So what Paul does, though, is he wants to also us to understand, and, and I kind of touched on this, Paul, Paul always wants to make sure that he's dealing with reality. So that's why, even though he mentions about the Spirit of God bearing witness with our spirit, that we belong to God, verse 17 says not only that we are children of God, but we are heirs, so he's made sure that's covered. And then he throws this in, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So he brings in this suffering, and he interjects suffering because there's suffering in the world. Everybody suffers. We suffer all kinds of things. Just even if you have a blessed life, you're suffering. You're getting older. You, we get sick. You know, we have accidents. We bury loved ones. I mean, it just goes on and on. You know, we, we're betrayed by people. Some of us experience things much worse than others. Um, but we all go through suffering. And so even though Christ has promised us an abundant life, Paul never disputes that. He wants us, to understanding the, wants us to understand the place of suffering in this. And again, it's the place of suffering in the life of the person who's been adopted by God, who's in this special relationship, who has a sonship relationship with God. How, why are all these things happening? There's a reason for this. There's, you're still in a body that's dying. There's still suffering. And Christ has said, I'm going to have this abundant life. My sins are forgiven. So how does all this come together? And that's what Paul is kind of working toward. Uh, and he wants us to, but he, again, he wants us to understand that this is not uh, a promise of life that's not going to be difficult or hard. There is going to be great ease in the future for everybody. But that's not yet. Right? We look forward to that day. So basically what's interesting is he says at the end of verse 17 that, again, he says that, we, that we're children, that we're heirs, and he says, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. So I think that what he's getting at here is this. Suffering for the sake of Christ. So this is a specific kind of suffering. This is not just suffering because you're old. This is not just suffering because people don't like you because you're tall, short, old, young, or whatever. This is where you're suffering because you are a Christian, because you're a believer. So suffering for the sake of Christ seems to be another way of being certain that we're saved. All right, it's not the only way. But it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, he does mention this, this idea that um, there's going to be suffering. And that's what he says, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So turn to Philippians chapter 1 for just a moment. I want us to look at some verses there so we can kind of get a handle on what he's talking about here. Because you don't have to go through a, a great series of persecutions to necessarily be suffering for Christ. We, we may but not necessarily. Philippians chapter 1. And I'll begin reading in verse 27. Paul writes, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that phrase, basically what Paul is saying is, look, when you live your life, make sure that the way you behave reveals that you have been saved by the grace of God. So that you have a life that's, in a sense, worthy to be pointed out as being a life that's portraying the grace of God. That's the idea. 
that he's getting at there. Because we're not earning salvation. But the idea is that my life has changed it, and, and it's a result of the gospel. And so someone can look at your life and see this change or hear about this change. Uh, and, your, your, and your life reveals the goodness and the strength of the gospel. Paul says, do that so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So Paul is saying, not only he wants him to behave in a certain way, but he wants him to do this whether he's there or not. Now the reason why he says that is because it's normal for some people, maybe for many, for us to behave in certain ways when certain people are around. You know, like how kids are. You know, they might be acting up till dad walks in. Then all of a sudden, they, straight, they may not even be doing anything wrong, but dad walks in, it's, you know, kind of a thing. Uh, we sometimes do that at work. You know, you might be working hard all the time, but it seems when your boss shows up, you work even harder. Uh, or whatever the case may happen to be. So, the, so Paul is just saying, look, whether I'm there or not, whether I see it, I want to hear about the fact that this is going on. Um, and then he says, with that, what he wants to hear is not just that they're behaving, but this behavior is specific. Number one, that, that they stand fast in one spirit. So he's, even though he's talking to individuals, he's talking to a group. So the idea is that as a group of believers in Christ, they're all on the same page. And they're all striving to live this way. And so they're standing fast in the Holy Spirit. They're standing fast as believers. They have one mind striving together. So the one mind means that, doesn't mean they agree on every detail of life, but it's just basically this idea that they are living for the glory of God. That, that they're living out in, in their lives in light of the gospel. That's just all he's talking about. So somebody comes to our church or any church, what they should see is a bunch of diversity. People have all kinds of lives, all kinds of personalities, and yet there's a single-mindedness that's also present at the same time. People want the Lord to be honored. They want the Lord to be glorified in their lives and together. They want the will of God to be done. They want to see those who don't know Christ come to know Christ. They want to see those who know Christ grow in their knowledge of Christ and in their maturity. They, they want to stay, they, they're all focused on praying for each other and helping each other to mature in Christ so that we continue to become like Christ. I mean, that's, so there's a single-mindedness that is there, even though we're all very different. So again, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries. So the idea here is that there are people who are against Christians, and these Christians aren't afraid. So it's, it's, a, it's an important thing, that we're not afraid. We, we recognize it's going to happen, we're not afraid. Now, it's, in our country, we don't really experience a kind of persecution that will necessarily cause anyone to be terrified. Um, it might, things might bother us, uh, but it's not like it is in other countries. I'm always amazed when either the ones I've met in person or the stories that I read, especially of those, it's not just those who are facing death, because I do think that when an individual is in a situation where they know that there's nothing they can do, and their life is truly in the hands of other people, that, that they can somehow adapt and still live life. But there are certain things about that that can cause you to worry and fret all the time. And that would be when your children's lives are at stake. That's different. Especially when they're young. It's even more different. And I've been amazed to, to read and to hear stories of people who, as they raise their children, and they teach their children, because they have to, that a day may come when bad people may come in the house and kill them, or threaten to kill them. And the kids know that really does happen because they live in areas where it happens. You know, no matter what you think is going on politically with Afghanistan, there's certain things you know for sure. Number one, there are radical Muslims, whatever group they belong to, whether it's the Taliban or ISIS 3 or 13 or whatever it is, uh, whatever's going on, they are going house to house. They are hunting down Christians and they're killing them. Some they hang, some they shoot. Uh, some they torture first. That's not a new thing that's been going on for a long time. So there are people today 
who at this very moment, who have already explained to the kids as they, as they are in hiding, not knowing if they're ever going to be rescued, uh, and they're ready to face death. I mean, they're, they're like ready. I mean, they don't want to die. The kids may still cry when the bad guys come with their guns and shoot them, but there's, there's, uh, there's just not the same level of terror that we might imagine that there would be. It's, it's, it's uncanny. Uh, and there's a willingness, a willingness to face that. Um, and I think it's more than just the fact that there's nothing they can do because they really are in that position, which is it's very difficult for us to imagine anyone being in that position. Uh, and there's people that, that, many, thousands of people that are in that position. So here he talks about that these individuals are not terrified by their adversaries. Anyway, no matter what the threats are, just, and you'll see that all over the world. There's, there's many countries where it's illegal for Christians to gather, and they gather all the time. They gather in the woods, they gather in the attic of a house, they gather in a, in a tunnel, they gather in an empty warehouse, they gather in the basement of an industrial plant. I mean, they do that all, and they're doing that knowing, knowing that if they get caught, they could, they could, their families would be separated, they could be spent the rest of their life in prison, they may be tortured, they may be killed. That's just that's how it is. That's just, it's amazing. But they're not afraid. They don't want to get caught. They are doing it in hiding, but they're not afraid because they still do that. It, you know, people who are afraid say, yeah, I'm not, I'm not coming to the meeting in the woods tonight, <laughs> you know, kind of a thing. I remember reading this, this uh, for a while in Romania, when Romania was under communist rule. There was some kind of network set up, and I have no idea how it was set up, uh, but let's just, say, let's just say that I was going to go to Romania to visit, uh, visit some orphanage. So people would find out that there's a pastor from Georgia that's going to be coming to the country and visiting a couple of orphanages. They would have all this stuff set up. I would show up, and one night in my hotel, my phone might ring, or there might be a note passed under the door, and it would basically tell me that there's someone who wants to meet me and to go to some place outside under the street lamp or whatever. And I would, if I follow that, somebody would meet me. They would be able to speak some English and they would, double, they would ask me questions and make sure I'm a pastor, I'm who I say I am, that kind of thing. And then they would say that there's some people who want to meet me because they, they want to talk about the Bible and Jesus. So I'd follow him to some place, and you know, I'm not from Romania, so after a while I'm lost. I don't know where I am. And then they would disappear, and someone else would show up, and they would leave me somewhere else, and they would disappear, and someone else would show up, and leave me in the woods. Then I'd go deep into the woods, and I'd find three or four men who are pastors, and they want me to teach them the Bible. And they would have questions, and I might be with them for two or three hours. Then people would get me back to my place, and then they would find out what my next free night is, and they would do the same thing. And I would be led out to this place, might meet with the same guys, might meet with them and some others, or completely different. And that, the whole time in Romania, that would happen. Because there were several pastors that happened to them. You know, and they were just because they were hungry for the word, they wanted to know what the word had to say, and that was the only way that they could find, find they just wanted to find anybody who knew more about the Bible than they did. And they wanted to learn from them. You know, and they, and they were willing to risk. You know, I, there's no risk to me. As an American, back in the, in the 80s, I would be kicked out of the country. But they're not going to do anything to me, because I'm an American. But Romanians? Yeah, they, they could be imprisoned, they could be killed, all the rest. So it's really an amazing thing that Paul talks about that here. It's hard for us at times to identify with this, because this just isn't our experience. But the majority of believers in the world, they identify with what this says. That's, that's what the majority of Christians experience. He says, uh, again, say not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you a proof, really, of salvation. So not being afraid of your adversaries is proof of salvation, which, again, is another way to objectively recognize that we belong to Christ. It's really uh, pretty incredible. Verse 29, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. I'm convinced verse 29 is probably one of the most unpopular verses in the Bible, because not, not a whole lot of people ever preach on that. Because what does it say? It has been granted on behalf of Christ, so this is the work of God, 
for the sake of Christ, he not only appointed you to believe in him, which, which we already know that our salvation is all due to God, but God has also appointed us to suffer for him. That doesn't go along with the health and wealth guys, but nonetheless. And then he says in verse 30, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. In other words, Paul's saying, that's, that's what I'm going through. And of course, one of the amazing things is Paul never complained. He talked about his suffering. He might list the things he went through, but he never complained about it. Never complained, uh, which is really quite incredible. And what's, what, what seems to be pretty common, uh, again, from a lot of things that I've read and from a few people that I've talked to, um, who've gone through great suffering, they've, I've never heard uh, them complaining. Never, ever. I mean, it's, not, it's, just, it's incredible. Uh, and then some of them even use language which almost sounds fake, that they considered it a privilege or an honor to suffer for Christ the way they did. That was, uh, you know, there's certain moments in life, you know, you, have, you might have a, an experience that's fairly profound. And for me, it was when I was, I was uh, a seventh grader and then an eighth grader. So I was really young. But I had read these two books, by two very small books, by these two guys who'd been tortured they were both pastors. One was a pastor in Hungary, one was a pastor in Poland. And they'd been tortured uh, by the communists. One had been tortured for 13 years, and the other had been tortured for 17 years because they were Christians. And I met them. They were in America. They were old um, when I met them. And uh, uh, it was just unbelievable. And they talked about, and the one guy, uh, I believe, let's see, it was Wormbrandt was the one who did this. So he, I mean, he took a shirt off. His back, I mean, I, I, it looked fake. It looked like someone who'd been, had they've used movie makeup, it looked like somebody had been whipped a hundred times. But it wasn't makeup, it was real. It, almost his entire back was scar tissue. It was incredible. He was kind of hunched over. Um, and his eyes, his eyes were very strange. They seemed to be set so deep in his head. But when you're really young like that, seventh, eighth grader, and you read little books, most kids remember everything they've read. If, you're inter if they're interested, they're going to remember everything. And I remember reading about this guy that one of the ways they would torture him is there was a wall with a special kind of uh, quartz paint. That's all I remember is quartz paint. And they would make you stand where you're this far from it, and you had to, had to keep your eyes open. And, it, and if you closed your eyes, because it would start to burn your eyes, then there would be this very large guy with a club, and he would just hit the living daylights out of you. So you're forced to stand there for days staring at this thing. So what happens is, you know, our body has all these defense mechanisms to try to survive. And so what happens is, is the eyeballs themselves, that your, your body's trying to pull them away so they kind of set deeper into your head. It's a long, slow process. It doesn't like happen in two days. Uh, but it's this long, torturous process that takes place. Uh, and so I just remember reading that, and when I looked at this guy's eyes, it was, I mean, it was unbelievable. Um, but he and the other guy, whose name was Harlem Popov, uh, they all spoke very gently. There was, there was no bitterness in their voices. There was no, I wish the, I hope these guys get what's coming to them. There's none of that. They were praying by name for their guards, for their salvation. Uh, a couple of guards, and I don't remember which guy had said this, but a couple of the guards that were involved in the tortures had become Christians. Um, and these guys had, they'd forgiven everybody. They, I mean, it was just amazing uh, to meet these guys. And so this is just what he's talking about here um, in this. So again, what he's talking about here, when he, when he comes to this suffering and, and not being afraid, this is all at the direction of God. So if we were ever to get to a point in our country, if we ever did, I don't know if it happened in my lifetime. It might. Um, but if we ever get to the point to where the per, uh, persecution towards us becomes much more pronounced, that, that's the, it's the will of God for that to happen. We're not going to like it. You know, I'm not going to be voting. If we were still voting, I'm going to be voting for people who want to do this. But I just don't think we're going to have much of a choice. We're moving in a particular direction in our country. We're going to keep moving in that direction, which is away from God. Uh, and more towards not just a secular worldview, but really an anti-Christian or anti-God worldview. And that's what's happening. And that's, that's, you know, that's part of God's judgment, actually. 
because Romans 1 says that when, whether it's the individual or group and you're pursuing uh, these kinds of sinful behaviors, God will turn you over to them. And that's, that's a form of punishment. Uh, it's mixed with mercy because the individual or the group still has a chance to repent, even though a lot of times they won't. Um, and so it's really quite amazing to read this. So there's a guy, there's a set of books. Um, some of you heard me talk about this before. It's, it's called Weist Word Studies, um, W-U-E-S-T. It's a pretty cool set of books. And, and so along with the Bible study of a lot of these different books in the Bible, he also has his own translation. He was a Greek professor, but he really had a good way of breaking things down to help people to understand really the, the thrust and bring out the depth of what Scripture was saying. So he, he translates these verses in Philippians this way. Uh, and he says this, And not being frightened in even one thing by those who are entrenched in their opposition against you, which failure on your part to be frightened is an indication of such a nature as to present clear evidence to them of utter destruction and also clear evidence of your salvation and this evidence from God. So the idea there is that our lack of fear is evidence of God and that we belong to him. And it also at the same time is evidence that would be used against those individuals and reveals their guilt and their hatred towards God um, in what they're doing. And remember what Jesus said. Jesus said, don't be amazed when people, uh, when people hate you because they hate me first. Uh, and that's really where the hatred is, is towards. So again, verse 29, back in Philippians, it says, uh, it has been granted. Uh, and the idea is this, this phrase that, that's used here, it has been granted, is, is a phrase that's often used in the Bible to talk about how God bestows salvation. Uh, so it's, it's the words on behalf of is another way to do this or say this. So the idea is, is that um, it means... Uh, it has been graciously given to saints to suffer not only for the sake of, but in the place of Christ. So when we say we're suffering in the place of Christ, we're not talking about the atonement. The idea is, is Christ has physically left. We, are, we physically remain behind. So then as the representatives of Christ, then when we suffer, then we suffer for the sake of Christ, but also in a sense, in the place of Christ. He would certainly suffer if he was here because the world hates him. So then when people come against us, remember they're really coming against Christ. That's, that's what Christians need to remind themselves of is that when uh, people persecute Christians, it's not really you, the individual, that they're coming after. It looks that way, uh, but it's Christ. He's the one they hate. And that's why there's such a, a, a strong emotion uh, towards individuals they never met. Uh, but it's directed toward the Christian. And so that's what's meant. Um, we don't really talk a lot about that, but we probably should talk a little bit more about that. Maybe we will if persecution rises and becomes a lot more pronounced. But there's this idea that we are then in that sense suffering in the place of Christ. Um, and that is an, it's an honorable thing uh, for us to, to be in that place. Christ would look very favorably upon us. Uh, in that, in there, there's special rewards for those who suffer. Again, remember, this got nothing to do with salvation. Uh, this is all after that. Um, but again, God is very much aware of what's going on. This is very much a part of His plan, and nothing will go unnoticed. So again, Christ has left. Uh, he has left with the church the message of salvation. It's the message that we declare to others. Uh, the preaching of the Word of God, which again is just the declaration. So that when we talk about the preaching of the Word of God, remember that doesn't always mean just the preacher. And it doesn't always mean preaching sermons. The word preaching oftentimes just means to declare. So whenever any of us are declaring, you know, you're just saying, this is what the scripture says, or this is salvation. You're preaching the gospel. That's what you're doing. You're, you know, you're, you're making this declaration of what it is. So God has left that with us. And of course, the preaching of the gospel draws the antagonism of the world. If you've not seen that, then you need to go back and look at certain talk shows whenever a certain Christian shows up and any Christian begins to talk about the gospel and just see how people go ballistic, how they just go nuts. In fact, all you have to do 
is take your favorite talk show, let's say Oprah Winfrey, and go on there and say Jesus is the only way. See what happens to you then. If they could, they'd crucify you. Man, they just, they hate that. Any, any kind of a statement that's exclusive. Of course, if you think about it, just for a moment, name a religion that's not exclusive. Except for maybe the Baha'i faith. They all believe they have what? The way. You don't, you don't hear, you know, if, if you want to join the Muslims, they don't say, well, if you join us, join Christians, it doesn't matter, we're all going to the same place. They don't say that. All right? You don't, if you don't talk to a Buddhist, they don't believe, the Buddhist doesn't even believe in God. You know, they just believe we're all going to kind of join some upper atmospheric nothingness kind of a thing. You know, that we're kind of God, but not God, and all that kind of stuff. But it's, so it's very different. That no one is declaring that um, there's many ways, except if they do, like if a Buddhist did, he ends up saying he, he's going he's to channel everything into what he believes. It's always going to go back to that. So the moment you make an exclusive claim, which Christians are always pretty insistent on doing, which the world hates, man, they just go, they just go bonkers over that. And so we'll be accused of being arrogant. Who do you think you are? You think you have the only way. You know, then what about these people? What about those? And it goes on and on with all these questions, which are just as old and they're just not new in any way. And they've been answered a thousand times, uh, but they don't like the answer. Um, but it's going to happen. So the preaching of the word of God, the preaching of the gospel is going to draw the antagonism of the world. And so then again, as saints, we will be suffering for righteousness sake. Um, and uh, the, uh, we end up, in a sense, being a substitute because Christ himself is absent. Uh, but he's not because we know that he's with us. And so that's the idea that he's talking about here. And so that helps to explain what Paul is talking about in Romans where he talks about the fact that there's going to be suffering. One way or another, there's just this normal suffering because of the curse of sin, but there's also the suffering that comes about as a result of suffering for righteousness. So again, our suffering and our lack of fear is proof of our salvation, uh, which is kind of a unique way of looking at things. So again, it's not the only one, but it's there. So again, that's why we should never grumble or complain when we're having a hard time. We shouldn't be whining. I'm having such a hard time. I believe the gospel, but I have trouble at home. I believe the gospel, but I'm suffering at work. I believe in the gospel, but nothing seems to go right. Woe is me. Feel sorry for me. Uh, and there's just no place for that in the life of, of a Christian. Uh, we should thank God, as the scripture says. We should count it all joy or consider it joy. So that doesn't mean that you're going to feel spontaneously joyful. It means that you, in essence, make a decision with your mind that you're going to be joyful. And we can be thankful because when we look at it or look at what's going on, it is evidence that we belong to Christ. So let me say this about uh, our homes. So um, if, if you have conflict in your home, in other words, you strive to live for the Lord, we're just going to assume that no one does that perfectly, but we strive to follow God, and you may have conflict with your spouse um, because of that. Remember that most often it's, all that is spiritual, and that's why we can't respond the way that the world does when it comes to personal conflict we have with other people because there's a spiritual element to it, and maybe a majority of it's spiritual. Um, we do need to make sure that if we are going through conflict at home or work, that it's really because we're following Christ and not because we're obnoxious, right? <laughs> Give us the right to be obnoxious toward people and to say, well, I'm suffering for the Lord, because you're not. You're suffering because you're obnoxious, all right? But the idea is, is that, um, uh, remember that when the, the simple story of Cain and Abel, ask yourself a question. Why did Cain hate Abel? The answer is given in the Bible. It's because Abel's works were righteous, were righteous and Cain's wasn't. That's it. No big conflict. It wasn't because one was more talented. It's got nothing to do with any of that. It wasn't because Adam and Eve were bad parents and they showed favoritism. It wasn't any of that. It was because one was righteous and one wasn't. And one who wasn't righteous hated it. Um, just like in schools, 
they don't use this term anymore, but you know, if you have a goody two-shoes, normally they don't have a whole lot of friends. That's the one everybody wants to make fun of. That's the one everybody wants to corrupt, is that person. Uh, and it's just, that's normal for the world. And so we need to recognize that. So then our life is going to bring a certain amount of antagonism. Uh, we, should, we should expect that. Um, if you have a kid who walks with the Lord, uh, who has a strong walk with the Lord, um, whether they go to a Christian school or a secular school, you can know this for sure, they're having a hard time. Doesn't mean that they're not dealing with it well. They might be dealing with it great. But there's people giving them a hard time because they, they're trying to follow God. They have, they're going to have fewer friends. They might have better friends. That's a good thing. But they're going to have fewer friends. They're not going to be really all that popular. That's just kind of rare. Um, yet your kids will go through that. And then when your kid gets in the world or when they go to college, it's going to continue. There'll be people, try, there'll be people trying to trip them up only because they're good. It's, it's crazy how the world is. Right, but the world, they're going to do that. And so that's why we pray for them. So, uh, we just need, we, and, and then also what's going to happen is, is that if we have conflict, the evil one is going to try to use that conflict to discourage you, uh, to get you to feel sorry for yourself. And so that's why we should arm ourselves with what the Word of God says, the truth of the Scripture. I know it's going to happen. I know why it's happening. I don't like it. It doesn't feel good. Uh, and then also that I think it also brings out the importance of Christian friends and the church. Because who's going to understand that? Well, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Where's the safe haven that we can go to? Well, it's our, it's our friends at the church. You know, we're on the same page. We're trying to go in the same direction. Some have experienced the same kinds of things. Uh, they're going to be there to pray for you. They're going to be there to help you. You, need, you just need to get away from the world and just spend some time with believers. Believers should be open to that. You know, to invite someone over to your house for dinner just so they can not have to deal with the constant pressure that comes. Because there is there's a lot of pressure in our world. Uh, you know, the world, again, is constantly trying to find a way to drag us down. And sometimes we just need a break. And that break is nothing more than just hanging out with other Christians. Because then you can let your guard down, so to speak. Right? You can. Like this, I don't have to, I don't always have to be on my guard. I don't always have to wonder what the motive is or all that kind of stuff. Um, and so we need to become much more aware of that as believers and, and look out for each other. Uh, in other countries where there is more pronounced persecution, it seems that the Christians that I've seen anyway, and I haven't seen a lot of it, uh, but what I've seen is they tend to do that really fairly naturally. They're just, they, everyone kind of steps up their game. Uh, when there's that kind of thing. Uh, there are many places in the world where every single person in the church has experienced persecution. There's no such thing as a Christian who's not experienced persecution. Again, it doesn't mean that their lives are being threatened. Uh, but even when I was on the island nation of Mauritius, um, there was not one person that I met who went to church who had not suffered some kind of persecution. Usually it was with the family. The family would either disown you or they would stop talking to you. They might mistreat you, not necessarily, not necessarily in a mean way where they would beat you up, though that would happen. Uh, there'd be women who would divorce their husbands, husbands who would divorce their wives because they become Christians. Um, there were women whose children were taken away from them because they become Christians. Um, individuals who have lost their jobs because they become Christians. And that was just in this little country that was basically Hindu. You know, it wasn't like a bunch of ravaging you know, communist or Islamic militants that were running around trying to beat Christians. This was just in a place that's kind of like Hawaii as far as it's the weather and the way people are. Um, and yet every single Christian there, every single one, um, had experienced that. Because in those, in those families, leaving Hinduism in particular, but actually leaving Hinduism or is Islam, is seen as betraying the family, betraying the, your culture, betraying your identity, betraying your people. Um, and so it's looked upon as being a very serious thing. And it's also seen as bringing shame on your family. You know, you brought shame to your family. Um, so, uh, and I did meet a few who asked me point blank, what's wrong with American Christians? 
Because <laughs> they would read different stories about how, I guess, Christians would compromise. And so I remember I met this one French lady, and uh, she already thought I was nuts. Because um, as we talked about our lives, and I told her how I live my life here, and that, you know, well, sometimes, you know, I'm going from one apartment to another. I pick up lunch, I'm eating lunch in my truck because I'm driving to go meet somebody to disciple them and all this stuff. And she says, what? Why are you living like that? That is just wrong. You need to stop. You need to get your food. Anyway, she went through all this stuff. I said, I don't have time. And all she said was, Americans are all the same. <laughs> but anyway, so she told me, she told me, she says, you know, she goes, I, I, I'm going to renew my vow. I said, what vow is that? She goes, that the Christians in America begin to suffer persecution because it's so helpful. So she said, it's so helpful. <laughs> and I said, I can see that. <laughs> so anyway, uh, their view of persecution is clearly very different from ours, uh, to say the least. But anyway, so we're in there, and uh, we will pick it up uh, next week and continue to work our way through what Paul says here in Romans 8. Well, you know what? Mm, mm, mm. No, 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 we'll stop. My bad. <laughs> I was thinking of something, but I changed my mind. Anyway, let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your grace in our life, and again, Father, for the encouragement we get from these verses. We do pray that you help us, Father, to uh, continue to, to develop uh, a, a biblical way of understanding the world and understanding what happens to us. That, Father, we would, we would think your thoughts after you. Help us to recognize, Father, really the, 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 the place of suffering, the importance of suffering, uh, the good that can come with suffering. Help us, Father, also to recognize your purpose in our life, the presence of your spirit, the marvelous promises that you've given to us. We thank you, Lord, for the blessing the church is to each one of us. And again, Father, the, the place that your word has that gives to us this information that enables us, Father, to think the way we ought to think. We pray that we'd be strengthened by this. So the Father, that no matter what happens tomorrow or next week, whether it's in our country or worldwide, that Father, we would not, that we would not despair of how things are going. The Father, we would quickly recognize that your hand is in these things and that the gospel, again, is clearly the answer. And also, Lord, to look forward to your soon return because that's the only thing that would deliver us from the quagmire that we find ourselves in. We thank you, Lord, for your presence with us tonight and ask that you keep us safe as we go home. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.